All right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with us today is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how you doing? Good morning. You know, it's it's one of those really beautiful New York City mornings where you walk out the door and you're like, wow, this is the best place in the world. Did you feel that way? No? Yeah, all weekend I felt that way, actually. You did, really? Yeah, yeah, it just was such a lovely, lovely weekend. Um, Were you out th This morning around? I was a little frustrated because I made Lyle a bagel and lox this morning for breakfast. Uh, well, I fucked up. So yesterday was Mother's Day. I had my parents uh, over. I got a bunch of food from Russ and Daughters. There was leftovers. So this morning I gave each of the kids Abby bagel and cream cheese since she's a vegetarian and a slice of babka. Lyle, bagel and lox and slice of babka. Of course they ate the babka first. Fine, that's my <laughs> fault. But I said yes. to Lyle, well, let's just, I, I put the bagel and lox in a paper towel for him and said, just eat it on the way to school. Um, and then I would say, as we're maybe a block into our walk with Sam and everything else, I see him covertly dump the bagel and lox into a trash can. And so I would say this morning I wasn't maybe quite as happy-go-lucky about that. That annoyed me, um, although it's my fault for giving my kids cake for breakfast. Um, but putting that aside, yes, it's a lovely day. And look, there are six months of New York City that are great, right? May and June. September, October, November, December, not because the weather's great in December, but the whole Christmas thing kind of works. And then the rest of it kind of sucks. Uh, so we are in that really great period right now. Nice. Okay. All right, so here's what we're talking about. Yeah, what we um, do. I got a few things that, that Corey wants me to remind people of, so we'll start with that. Uh, we're going to talk about the migrant situation. We're going to talk about um, why the lesson that we get from art constantly is that money and power and status doesn't make us happy, and yet none of us think actually that, that lesson applies to them. And then if we have any time, we'll touch on the latest on this Daniel Penny Jordan Neely situation. So let me start with the housekeeping. One, um, we've rebranded Firewall. We've got a new logo, a new look. So um, check it out on firewall.media. If you have feedback, let us know. Um, second, on June 1st here at PT Knitwear, which is where we're recording from right now, 180 Orchard Street in Manhattan, uh, Lena Khan, who is the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, is going to do an event uh, with me at the bookstore. We're going to talk about antitrust and trade policy and technology and everything else. Um, would love for the listeners to come. It's free. Uh, you do have to RSVP, which you can find on the Firewall site or on my Twitter feed, um, but uh, we'd love to have you there. Um, third, uh, I need to keep reminding you guys, please, please, please pre-order uh, my book, Obvious in Hindsight. It is a novel about a campaign to legalize flying cars in New York, LA, and Austin. And it comes out November 7th, but um, what we've learned is the more pre-orders we get on Amazon especially, and it kind of kills me to say this since I'm literally sitting in the money-losing bookstore that I own, um, but the more then impacts their algorithm, the more they recommend it, which means the more people are likely to um, to see it. So, Is um, there no way to pre-order on other like, You can, booksellers? Barnes & Nobles and stuff like but, that. But what about like bookshop.org? Can you not pre-order on that? You, I don't know about bookshop.org. You probably could. I think the problem is just that doesn't help the doesn't help with the Amazon algorithms. Right. And I think if, al if 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 there's enough pre-orders, then Amazon starts to push it just automatically, and okay. then all of a sudden that takes it into its own got it little world. So given that the whole point of the book is to entertainingly show the point of this podcast, which is that every policy output is a result of political input. Um, hopefully, we can get that point across more broadly if more people read it. So if you guys could please pre-order it, I would really appreciate it. Um, all right, and now let's start with with the migrant situation. Okay. So, 
Uh, do you have a question or do you want me just to jump into a monologue? <laughs> I mean, I have lots of questions, but I guess I guess I'm uh, let's start a little global by talking to especially to non-New Yorkers about what the migrant situation is, yeah. because, yeah, I mean, it's 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 been going on for, I don't know, a year. Yeah. More, um, more and, I'd say. And and what what is happening in New York City so, that's different than than well, is happening and I, everywhere in the country? What I would say is my, my argument's not going to really distinguish New York City dramatically from the other okay. cities anyway. Which is so um, there's tremendous violence in a lot of Latin American countries, especially whether it's Haiti or Nicaragua or Venezuela. Uh, obviously, all the cartel violence in Mexico. So a lot of people coming up through the southern border to try to get into the United States. Um, we have mainly adopted this policy of detention. So the migrants come, we immediately kind of quasi-arrest them, and then they become wards of the state. Um, because there are while so they make many, an appeal for asylum. Yes, while they right. make an appeal for asylum. Sorry. And because there are so many of them, uh, both partly for politics, partly for logistics. They have been shipped all over the country. And so cities uh, like New York City are dealing with thousands and thousands and thousands of people who now have to be fed and sheltered and cared for that were not the city's responsibility before. Um, so it's been a crisis on multiple levels. So as I see it, there are four underlying problems and one solution that I think fixes the whole thing. Okay. So problem one. Cities like New York are just overwhelmed, right? You, you just all of a sudden having thousands, or I think more more accurately, tens of thousands of people. I guess it's thirty five thousand people in, in the city custody right there we now. Go. That's that, what I read that you have to find housing for, food for, medical care, everything else is just literally overwhelming the budget, the the bandwidth of the city government, everything else. And if that's true here, that's true everywhere. So one is, you have now a huge operational and financial problem for cities and states. Number two. The economy is desperately short on workers to do jobs that Americans don't want to do, whether that's delivering food or picking fruit or mowing lawns. Um, and so we've got a huge shortage in, in the labor market at the very bottom um, that people need to fill. And the truth is people coming to this country uh, are willing to do basically anything so that they can be safe in this country. And so as a result, um, they're willing to fill jobs that the economy desperately needs. Third, from a longer term perspective, you know, the baby boomers are getting really old. I think over 90% of them will be retired by 2030 or 35. And so um, the cost of caring for them, Social Security, Medicare, everything else, goes up and up and up. And yet we have a society that is aging. The, the birth uh, rate is down 20% since 2007. Um, and so we have fewer people being born, more and more people living longer and needing more and more care. And there's a giant imbalance in the tax base where you have people who are not working and taking resources out of government, um, and they're not being backfilled by more people who are working. So we need literally millions and millions and millions of new taxpayers, um, and we're not going to get that domestically through organic birth because birth rates are way down. So we just literally need more people in this country so we don't become Japan. Um, and then the fourth would be you have people all over the world who are suffering tremendous violence and, and instability and lack of human rights. And so while not everyone in the world can come here, why not try to make people's lives better if we can? But so you have these four different problems, but there's one solution, and it's driving me a little crazy that we don't seem to see it, which is let them in and put them to work, right? So trying to house and detain them doesn't make sense. 
Instead, you say, okay, you're here. Here's a work permit. Go for it. And they, you know what the 99% of them will do? They will find jobs. They but, will. But isn't the entire middle of the country opposed to this? Isn't this what Donald Trump like succeeded on, on, on lambasting that, that, uh, that, that they were basically letting in immigrants to take the jobs of white Americans? Isn't that what the... Yeah, but I, th I think part of that is, you know, you've got a message like, look, these are the jobs specifically that are typically being filled. These are things that you, white American on disability in Indiana, who hasn't worked since the you know cargo plant left town, um, but you're you're funded by the government despite your hatred of the government. Um, these are not jobs that you're willing to do. You want to go deliver for DoorDash or pick fruit off of a you know at a farm or or mow lawns for a living. Go ahead and do it. Great, but you're not because these jobs are literally unfilled in the economy, and so. Yes, but I would say this. So, so now you just shifted it to politics, right? So the, the, the I didn't mean to do that. No, I'm sorry. Right. No, I'm saying, so the, the, the substantive solution to me is let them in and don't take care of them. You're not my problem. I don't have to feed you. I don't have to house you. I don't have to care for you. You want to come to this country? Great. Welcome. Here's a work permit. Um, we'll check back in with you in six months. If you're gainfully employed, we will keep it going. If not, we will deport you pretty fucking simple. And it will not cost me a penny. I don't need to spend a penny on that. From a macro political standpoint, yes, this is certainly the message of Donald Trump. But guess what? Trump's running anyway. He's still going to say this message, whether or not it's true. And the problem is the Biden administration just looks wildly incompetent because no one knows how to... The, the, the solution that they have, and Obama had the solution, and, and Trump even to a certain extent... It just isn't workable. So in other contexts, you've praised the Biden administration for being forward-looking, for doing sort of courageous policy, yeah. certainly on, on, on climate stuff, um, on economic stuff. Um, what's What are they not seeing? Why are they not getting this? I mean, I think there's a, a few problems. One is I think they probably are somewhat paralyzed by the fear of being attacked by Trump and the right, and so that they're, they don't want to show that they're soft. But at the same time... Um, the solution they have is not an actual workable solution. So they just look wild and incompetent. That's number one. Number two, look, you know, government is not an algorithm. It's the reflection of the work of people. And the people working on climate in the Biden administration clearly are a lot more talented than the people running Homeland Security. Um, and, you know, Mayorkas does not seem to be a raging success. Kamala Harris got stuck with this unworkable project, and she's not improving it in any way. And so you might have people who aren't quite as good working on it, where the policy that underlying doesn't make sense, driven by political fears that I think actually are unwarranted simply because the people who are going to vote against you because they hate immigrants, they're not voting for Joe Biden anyway. But the people who are just like, you know, I don't like Trump or DeSantis, but Biden's so fucking old, they at least have to think he's old, but he's competent. Did right? you see him on the bicycle this weekend? Um, no. I mean, yeah. he didn't crash or anything, but That's just seeing good. him. By the way, I, I can't ride a bicycle, so he's he's more spry than me. The just RAD seeing him on the bicycle made me nervous. Um, but he did fine, I but, think. But, but point being, at least let's look competent and smart so that it, it so that it counteracts the age thing, right? If you look old and incompetent, then that's really a problem. And so for a bunch of reasons, um, now the New York congressional delegation has asked uh, DHS, I guess, or INS, or whatever the relevant piece is within that, um, to expedite work permits for the migrants. I think that's actually a really good step, and it's nice to see that the delegation actually acting with some common sense. Uh, and by the way, the delegation includes the Senate Majority Leader and Chuck Schumer and the House Minority Leader and Hakeem Jeffries, plus some really famous people like AOC. Um, and so uh, hopefully we'll start to get towards a sensible solution. But it's just like, it's always shocking when there is like this huge problem 
This obvious solution, yes, it requires a different way of thinking about it. It requires a different approach or will require some different laws, some different regulations, everything else. But it is still a wildly, in my view, sensible solution. And rather than just accepting it, we just kind of keep living, you know, we keep going down the rabbit hole. But there's there's obviously a lot of fear driving this. I don't know if you saw when, when, when the mayor was trying to put... Uh, put some of the migrants up in hotels outside the city, up, upstate. They literally had police cars, local police, blocking the access to the to the, to the hotels. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's you wouldn't have this, by the way, crazy, right? If you just said, hey, good luck to you, and then they just sort of disappear into communities and they fill jobs that are needed and they start to make money and then they're able to support their families and eventually they become taxpayers so they sort of build the tax base itself so like the problem you're describing is because we're assuming this responsibility that we can't handle and shouldn't have in the first place so what what would you do right now if you're mayor adams is there i mean fucking so turn them loose i would just say you know what federal government this is not my problem i am not housing these people i am not i am not sheltering these people i'm not feeding these people as far as I'm concerned, New York City um, needs the workers. We will gladly match up every person who wants to work um, with uh, industries that are looking for jobs. We have all kinds of mechanisms in, through the city of New York to, to do that. Okay. Um, and that's it. And I'd say the rest of it, Joe Biden, is your problem. Okay. That's what I would do. Um, are we going to talk about happiness now? Is that, yeah, is that, yeah. Um, tell me. Is it, so here, to, here was the Bradley point. has a very well-worked-out sort of— So I was— I was uh, Sitting around, and I didn't have my phone, um, and so that forced me to actually think. Where was your phone? My phone was uh, below me. I was at a doctor's office, and I didn't. I, I complied with the rule and put my phone away. Uh, That's the rule in your doctor's office. It was like while you're waiting, whatever it is. Anyway, I didn't have my phone okay. for a couple of minutes, Fair and enough. so like I dared to actually just try thinking. Um, and, and, <laughs> so you're and, sitting there just dreaming. I, I was kind of thinking about maybe you know. The show Succession, uh, White Lotus, um, the book Trust by Hernan Diaz, which is, is about money and power, uh, just won the Pulitzer Prize the day before that, I think. And, and here was the question I just started wondering about. And I don't have an answer to this. I just kind of wanted to raise the topic and go through the reasons why I think this is the way it is, which is a vast majority of art, right? So movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, music, all of the stuff has a very similar message, which is, despite what you think, money, power, status doesn't actually make you happy, right? Like succession is sort of the, the show of the moment, at least for a place like, like New York City, where you have these people who have all of the money in the world, all of the power and influence in the world. They literally last night, I picked the president of the United States, basically. <laughs> um, and yet they are unbelievably unhappy, miserable human beings. Um, and so... White Lotus, another good example of that. So you, you have all of this stuff that seems to penetrate the cultural zeitgeist. And yet the thing that's amazing to me is we never believe them. None of us. Like there is this overwhelming amount of evidence, both both anecdotal, statistical, both fictional and real life, um, that shows that the sole pursuit of money or power or status always ends badly. And yet at the same time, None of us actually believe that at the end of the day. So I started just kind of wondering why, right? So here were the answers. Uh, uh, okay, I just wanted to ask you one question. No one believes that? Like no one of your friends, of your family? Of I your, just don't think, I don't think, I think some very, very evolved people might believe. I think there's two groups of people that, that believe. There are people who are truly 
content. Um, and that might be because there's real fulfillment relationships in their lives that they get meaning out of. It might be because of their faith. Um, for you know, it just might just be their personality. Um, and there are people like me who now understand these things, but the truth is I've accumulated so much money and status and power that like big fucking deal that now I'm like, oh, it's not really that important. Like I have all of it already. Um, so look, I live in a bubble, right? I live in Manhattan. I work in venture capital. I work in politics. I work in media. Um, I am not probably living the most common you know, U.S. life, but I genuinely do believe that that sort of implicit rejection of this notion is is close to universal, okay? So here are the reasons that I came up with for why. So the, the, the first and the most obvious is obviously capitalism, right? So the entire point of our advertising system is to say, if you only had that toothbrush, if you only had that shirt, if you only had that car, if you only had that beer, you'd be happier. You'd have more friends, you'd have more fun, you'd have more status, you'd have more sex, you'd be more attractive your life would be better. And the challenge is we're fed this message implicitly all day, every day, through all forms of advertising. So when the entire economic system is built to prey upon your insecurities and sell you things you don't actually really need under the message of you're not happy, but this would make you happy, um, it's pretty inescapable, right? And you think about it, it's, it's online ads, it's social media ads, it's TV ads, podcast ads, billboards, it's just, it's inescapable, and so it breaks through. And the problem is, because I also wrote up, uh, took some notes here, you know, is, is there a solution? I, on this one, I don't really have one, right? I mean, because on one hand, uh, it would require a totally different economic system, and maybe some people will listen to cheering saying, yeah, that's what we need. But we also know, as we've discussed on this podcast quite a bit, you know, capitalism over the last 100 years has done more good for society than any sort of economic or governmental or religious system in history, right? It has lifted more people out of extreme poverty, extended life expectancy, reduced infant mortality, increased literacy. It's changed people's lives that ultimately then have led to people having more human rights, more equality. Um, and so it, you don't want to get rid of capitalism because capitalism actually is probably the single greatest force for good overall from a macro standpoint that we've had in human history. And at the same point, this, the very notion of capitalism that drives it on a day-to-day -day basis is designed explicitly to exploit your insecurities and fears, um, which means that even if you know intellectually, like, yeah, more money probably won't make me you know, blissfully happy, um, all, of, all of capitalism, all of advertising tells you otherwise. And on this one, I, I don't know if there is a solution. Well, I mean, there's just a solution in terms of, in terms of like, uh, like if you're raising a family or around your friends of like actually thinking about what you do and what you talk about in opposition to like all these messages we get that want us to buy new yeah. shit. And well, like, look, let's you know. let's think about it. So I, I assume this is true for you. Our kids go to a Quaker school. Your kids and my kids go to the same school. And in choosing that school when Abigail was in preschool and we were looking at kindergarten, that was the idea was like, okay, we live in Manhattan. We're staying here. We're sending our kid to a, you know, seemingly extensive private school. But if it's a Quaker school, hopefully that will help counteract the values a little bit. So it'll be a little less gossip girl and a little more grounded in some sense of, of humanity. I don't know if that's proven to be true or not. I think we've had a generally pretty good experience. But but overall— I think relatively speaking, I'm sure it's proven, proven to be true. It's just a question of whether it's enough. Right? Yeah, fair enough. Um, so yes, I think that the way that you raise your kids— but I have to say, especially when we get into the next culprit, which is social media, you know, 
parents can preach and talk all day long when everything else that our kids hear throughout the day is the opposite. And in many ways, once they become teenagers, parents are the least credible messengers and yeah. the least liked. I think it's pretty tough. So social media, look, if advertising isn't bad enough, the whole point of social media is to reinforce what you don't have and why someone else is better than you as a result, right? right. I mean, social media is either A, a forum for people to present them a version of themselves that doesn't actually exist but seems a lot better than their real selves, or a form of people to demonstrate how much smarter and more virtuous they are than everyone else, or at least anyone who dares to disagree with them. And so either way, it makes you feel bad about yourself, right? Like this person is smarter than me, prettier than me, you know, has a better car than me, is a better human being than me, whatever it is. Um, what would change that? You have a million followers, right? Then all of a sudden you're setting the terms. And whatever your reality is now becomes the baseline because now everyone is listening to you. Um, you have a million followers, then what happens? Everyone envies you, everyone tries to win your affection. And the more beautiful and the more rich and more powerful you are, the more followers you get. And what does that do? It reinforces the same message as advertising, but in an even more insidious way because advertising is certainly preying at our insecurities, but because it's so sort of so broad based, there's only so much Budweiser. Yeah. yeah, there's only so much Budweiser can do, right? <laughs> but, you know. We've uh, done a lot. Yeah, but a, a social, you know, a, a tweet, an Instagram post, a TikTok video. It hits home. Can hit home in a far yeah. more powerful way. And so, look, the solution on this one, obviously the listeners are tired of hearing me say this, but is repealing Section 230. So um, that would help a little bit in that it would force the platforms to be a little more responsible um, when it comes to, to content. But at the same time, even if you do repeal that, it, it, Section 230 is meant to prevent things that are truly harmful, like, you know, Instagram groups that show young girls how to cut themselves and things like that. Um, it's not going to fundamentally change human nature itself. And so I, I don't know. I mean, for adults, for me, for you, the answer is don't use social media, and I don't. Um, but for our kids, it's not really an option. It'd be like telling us not to use email or text or like, how am I going to work without that? Right? I can't. So, you know, 230 repeal would help a little bit. But, but I do think that there's a far broader problem here that I think uh, we don't have a good solution to. All right. The third is status, right? So status just matters to us. And I'm pretty sure that back in the hunter-gatherer days, you know, long before radio, long before TikTok, Somebody in the tribe had more status than other people. And someone else in the tribe said, I wish I had that status, right? Because then I would have the better pelt, the more attractive mate, uh, you know, the juicier cut of, uh, of, the, of the animal we just killed, whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, the answer is judge yourselves based on what's within, not what's external. And look, I think Buddhism to a certain extent promotes this and does this. And so maybe there are parts of the world where, where people are less concerned with external status and validation because they are able to feel better about themselves. And we've talked about that, that Finnish study that talked about by being more content, um, you seek less status, less influence, less money, less power, and then you feel better about yourself and you're happy. Um, but, you know, with that said, again, we live, this is not a Buddhist country, and this is not Finland, and, and I've never actually talked to anyone Finnish to know if the study's even true. Um, so what can you do? Uh, you can meditate. I've been doing that every day for, not for a long time, since like the fall. Um, I take a class once a week. I do it every day. It has definitely helped, but uh, keep in mind, I'm almost 50 years old at this point, right? So um, what difference does that make? What do you mean? I, I mean that it Your took patterns me. Patterns are so. It took ingrained. me. No, it's just, it, it took me a very long. Even if I'm now finally able to 
rely a little less about external validation, a little more on internal validation. Uh, it took me a very, very long time to get to this point, which kind of we've talked before about dialectical behavioral therapy on this podcast. And it's, it's a form of therapy that really teaches people kind of how to deal with their anxiety, how to validate other people so that, that you feel heard and respected, which is what people want actually more than the outcome itself that they're asking for. Um, and, and I think I've said before, I think we should teach dialectical behavioral therapy in school instead of like Spanish or something like that, um, because I think people understanding how to help themselves in moments of anxiety, which we all have moments of anxiety pretty much every day, and how to interact with other people in a way that people just feel better about it. And if that became the norm, we would just feel better. I think all of that might actually be something of a solution to this constant external status seeking. But still, with an economy based on on advertising to make you feel bad about yourself and social media on top of that, it's still pretty tough. All right, number four, security, right? Which is, it's nice not to have to worry about money. Right. And it feels logical to say if I have more power, more status, more money, I will need to worry less. And, and in some ways, that is kind of true. Right. Like I worry about money in the sense that I worry about raising our next venture capital fund. I worry about hitting our revenues, have targets for tough strategies. I worry if I have enough money to fund the whole mobile voting campaign or the whole school meals campaign. But if the dishwasher breaks, I'm not worried about fixing it. Right. And, you know, but the point is, you know, I don't worry about money on kind of a day-to-day level like people who, most people who actually do have to worry about money do. Right. So there is this feeling, obviously, like, well, if I were as rich as Kendall Roy, it wouldn't matter if this, whether someone could just hand wash the fucking dishes for me and I would be, be fine. Right. So it is reasonable to believe that with more money, more status, more power, more influence, um, you will have more security. So I think there is a solution to this one, and that gets back to universal basic income, right? And so, like, you know, UBI is not going to make us all of a sudden the world going to be living in Roman Roy's, you know, triplex apartment on the Upper West Side or wherever it is. But at the same time, look, everyone should have enough food. Everyone should have a place to live. Everyone should have access to basic medical care. And universal basic income, I think, would help all of these things happen by ensuring that people have enough money for the basics. And if we did it right... You wouldn't have to do it all through a massive increase in taxes and then redistribution where 50 cents on the dollar gets sort of stolen, lost, wasted, frittered away for political purposes that have nothing to do with helping people. Um, And so I I think that if we were to have UBI done the right way, a lot of that security that we worry about would go away. I also think that's why we should have single-payer health care. I would uh, argue for an opt-out so that people have the means to, to not use that system and want to pay for out of their pocket, fine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, people shouldn't have to worry about being getting sick and not being able to go to the doctor about it. Um, and I think that we've got to make affordable housing far more easier to access, right? We have this problem where, you know, there's widespread agreement that we need more affordable housing, but then there are so many roadblocks put up to do it, by the way, frequently by, by the left. So it's, you know, environmental reviews and community board reviews and zoning reviews and all these different restrictions that ultimately make it impossible for people to find housing that's affordable. Um, And I think that we've got to get rid of the vast majority of those things and just make it a lot easier. And so I think that if you could give people, you know, a basic income that puts food on the table um, and you can make sure that they, they know they have medical care and you can create housing that people can actually afford to live in, you would address the security thing quite a bit. It still won't stop making you envious when you see real estate porn on t- TV, right? I, you know, 
I live in really nice places, and I still, if I see something, I'm like, oh, that looks really nice, right? Um, so it, it's not going to change human nature, but I, I do think it would make things a lot better. Um, the fifth is experience, and just it's common sense, right? It's nice to have nice things, right? Like sitting in first class is inherently better than sitting in a middle seat in the last row by the bathroom. Uh, a BMW is a nicer car to drive than a Honda Civic. Stumptown tastes better than Folger's Choice. Like, like we can say money doesn't matter, money doesn't buy happiness. Here's a thousand studies that show this. But to a certain extent, common sense is like, yeah, it does. Because like, it's nicer to have nice shit than it is to not have nice shit. And what's interesting is the people who often sort of learn this lesson the hardest way are the people on the far right and left who tend to be the most self-righteous about it because they're still human beings. So AOC, for all for socialism, lives in a seven-figure apartment, right? By the way, fine, you know what? She's figured out a way to make a lot of money and generate a lot of wealth, and if that's what she can afford, she should live there. But but stop pretending like you're a person of the people when you're not. You're living in a multi-million dollar apartment, or you have these preachers who are constantly sort of talking about family values and everything else, and they're getting caught, you know, sleeping with their secretary on a private plane or some crap like that. So part of it also is the self-righteous should be wary because it is human nature to like nice stuff. And when you build up your entire persona on decrying that, uh, it's eventually going to come back to, to bite you. Um, next one, excitement. Look, a lot of life is wonderful, but let's be honest, a lot of it is boring. A lot of it's monotonous. A lot of it's sort of same old, same old. You know, when I was talking a while after he threw out the bagel and I was calmed down a little bit, um, he ran me through his schedule for school today. And he actually asked, what do you have? Which was surprising. Um, and, uh, you know, I've got a bunch of meetings that I find kind of interesting, but like, Will I remember in, forget about in five years, in five days what I did today? Now, right? Like it's still, there's some level of just monotony built into life. And so, you know, in at least art, there's a narrative arc, right? And interesting things have to happen to make the book, the movie, the TV show, whatever, the opera, whatever it is, interesting to, to follow. You wouldn't have good writers if we didn't. And so I think we all want a little more excitement in our lives, right? We don't want stress and problems, but we do want excitement. Uh, and we all, no matter how good our lives are, tend to fall into ruts and routines that, that, that get boring after a while. And so, um, you know, the one good thing I would say here is it does feel like the zeitgeist has shifted a little bit from spending money on things to spending money on experiences. So that that's a good thing and maybe actually a, a positive uh, output of, of social media because I, I, I do think that um, I remember the times that I spend with people. And th like, like my match tickets, right? I love the Mets, but the main thing is that I just get to spend time with people in a way that if you just said, hey, let's go out for dinner – you could spend six months trying to find a date and it never works and someone has to cancel whatever it is. You're like, do you want to go to the Met game next Thursday? Yes. Okay, I'm texting your ticket right now. Here it is. You might cancel, but most likely you're going to show up because it's a thing, right? And then we had this experience together, you know? Uh, you may regret sad, some, sad some, some Mets games that we've gone to together. But but overall, and so I, I think, you know, boredom, uh, final two, disbelief. Um, I think we all watch these shows or movies or whatever it is, and we say, yeah, 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 Kendall Roy, Shiv Roy, whatever, terrible, right? Miserable fucking people, all this money. Like, we totally can parrot the lesson, and then, you know, we think deep down, yeah, but that's not me, right? That's true for human nature. It's true for people, but I'm a little different. I'm the outlier. I would handle this better. 
I would handle this just fine. And in part, you think that because in order to make the point that these people are miserable, you have to make them sort of insufficient human beings in many ways. So it's easy to say, well, hey, I'm, I'm going to be better than that. But I really do think that as we're watching this thing, we just fundamentally don't truly believe that even if that's true for everyone else, that it's actually true for us. Yeah. I mean, there's a fantasy of just seeing people go for it, right? And just, just yeah, it's exciting. annihilate their opposition or just do crazy shit. I mean, I think that's the, that's the fantasy of the show for me. But Yeah. And the last one is just the messages that's undermined by the media, right? Because in order to make Succession fun to watch... You know, yes, there is this moral tale of these people who are sort of lives are, are empty and meaningless. But at the same time, you got to make it fun. So you have to show all of the wealth and power and status and make it exciting and make it attractive. Because if if that's not happening, no one's going to watch the show or read the book in the first place. And so in many ways, the medium itself undermines the message because, you know, in order for us to listen or watch or read or devote our attention to something, it has to be seductive. It has to be interesting. It has to be uh, appealing in some way. And so, you know, e e even as uh, art may sort of say to you, the pursuit of money, power, status is bad, in order to get you to keep watching or reading or listening, it kind of has to maybe undermine that a little bit in and of itself. And, and so, you know, look, is there a solution to everything that I just said? No, not necessarily. I think there's a few, a few things that we threw out there, but but it is We're really talking about it, thinking about it. Yeah, but it, it is really interesting that like so much of of what's out there in art is designed to make one underlying point. That's true for Shakespeare and the Bible and whatever else, right? And yet, I still think there's this amazing human cognitive dissonance where we see all that, we hear all that, we process it, we understand it, and we don't actually internalize any of it. Um, well done, Bradley. Um, that was a lot. Uh, but let me, let me, um, we'll take uh, listeners a second to absorb all that. But the, um, let's talk about last night's episode, though, because it did take... Of Succession. The Succession did yeah. take a hard turn into your world, which has been, you know, flirting with uh, the whole season. But last night was all politics all the time. Um, what did what did you think of it? What, I mean, did you did it feel did it feel authentic? Did you did it surprise it you? Did it, it didn't feel inauthentic, right? Which was one. Um, you had people, this case being the Roy family, uh, making massive societal decisions for their own personal benefit, which mm -hmm. is basically again every policy output is a result of political input. Every politician makes every decision solely based on their personal situation and nothing else at all times. Um, so the Roy's, same thing. So one is, no, it, it rang true to me. Two, uh, I guess I'll spoil this, but, uh, oh, did you see there was a piece in the paper the other day that said that like spoilers don't actually spoil our enjoyment of anything? Oh, really? There's like a whole study that someone did. It was interesting. Um, but but put, So if we hear, like, but like now I'm going to tell you what happened. So, so there's, there's this presidential election. It's tight. Um, there's a the Milwaukee vote counting center. There's a fire. Um, the, all of the absentee ballots disappear. The suspicion is it was done by the Republican campaign to get rid of these votes because without those 100,000 votes in, in the Milwaukee area, the Republican wins the state uh, and therefore wins the election. And um, while uh, ATN, which is the Fox News version on the TV, on the show, knew for a fact, basically, that this, you know, what had happened was was election fraud in some way, 
Uh, they cut a deal with the Republican candidate to support them and some business-related stuff. Um, and they call Wisconsin for Mankin, who's the candidate. Mankin then wins Arizona, I guess legitimately, puts him over the top. He has enough left to college votes. They've effectively anointed the next president. Now, that doesn't mean that just because ATN said so, that's what's going to happen. But um, what it means is now you have half the country totally dug in saying, what are you talking about? We won, which leads to endless protests, litigation, and then ends up uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court. And look, you know, we saw what happened in 2000, right? Like Al Gore clearly won that election, and yet George W. Bush managed to win in the Supreme Court. So uh, in part because of, of the, the the paper ballots, which are just such a faulty mechanism for voting. Um, but, but nonetheless, um, yeah, it, 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 it was a little less, cons- most times when I see read, hear, whatever, fiction about politics, it frustrates me because it feels like the writers don't understand what actually makes things tick one way or the other. Either they're overly cynical to a point where it doesn't even make sense for even for bad people, or they're overly idealistic, whatever it is. In this case, I, th- I thought the writers actually got it pretty right. So let me ask you one question. Maybe this will be the last one of the, of the, um, of the episode. But do you think there's a purpose served by this kind of phenomenon being fed back to us as fiction. So some version of what they showed on Succession last night happened in real life. Mm-hmm. And then they sort of changed a bunch of stuff, reenact it, obviously run it through the lives of these characters. But is that purely just like, okay, so that's an entertainment and that's a show that we watch and talk about? Or do you think it has some value? You mean like in the notion that like if in the 2024 election a vote counting center in Milwaukee does get firebombed. Well, I don't mean to be that well, that literal, but, but um, just but just like like so we see the process sort of laid out. You know, we didn't we obviously didn't hear those conversations in the newsroom or in the executive no, suite be, be, on twenty no, twenty well, election. But. No, because again, everything is so polarized, right? So Succession is a show for rich people who consider themselves liberal to feel morally superior to rich people who consider themselves conservative. That's the point. That's of the point of the show. Okay, right. Um, I'm amazed you watch it, given that. Um, because it's still like a fairly fun between all of the politics right. and media and money and business and everything else. And it's, it's an incredibly well written. Look, a, a well written anything right. tends to win out, right. right? And it's a really well written show. They're good at insults. Um, Great insults. But did is there some societal benefit to this audience being reminded of some potential harm like that? No. no. Okay. Not at all. Um, why don't we why don't we keep the Jordan Neely um, uh, Daniel Penny conversation for for a future date um, in part because I think it's not something we want to just add on but also like it's obviously going to be a story that's running through yes it's going to go for many he's, weeks he's going I think go to he'll go to trial I'm never talking about it but unless they cut him a deal that involves no jail time he's going to go to trial which means this is going to go on for a while so yeah plenty of time to talk about this Bradley I'll see you next week see you go. 